In the ancient world, they did not know that the sun, moon, and stars were material objects. They had no clue. One of the things that first drew my attention to all of this is that particularly in the first three days, God doesn't make any objects. I don't see anything in the ancient Near East that's interested in material ex nihilo. Amos 4.13, God forms the mountains. Did you notice that in Genesis 1, there's no mention of mountains or lakes or rivers? None of the terraform stuff is there. That's what I would expect in a material account. Hey everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm on with John Walton. We're going to be talking about immaterial origins, his view, as well as common objections to it. Uh, John, tell us about yourself, uh, what you're up to these days, and how you're doing. I'm doing great. Thanks, Zach. Great to be on having this conversation. Uh, so I grew up in a, a Christian home, uh, went to church always, uh, raised in the Bible, both in my church and my home. So I had a, a significant background in all of that. Um, didn't decide to go into Old Testament as an academic career until my graduate work. So I did my master's degree in Old Testament and then my PhD at Hebrew Union College, a Jewish school in Cincinnati, where I studied with some rabbis. Uh, so that's what launched me into my career. I spent 20 years teaching at Moody Bible Institute, and now I've spent over 20 years teaching at Wheaton College. I teach Old Testament. I teach especially the relationship of the Old Testament to the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, right now, I'm working on a commentary on Daniel uh, in the uh, New International series that Erdman's publishes. I also have a manuscript called Best Practices for Faithful Interpretation uh, that's in the editing phase. And my current writing project is The Lost World of the Prophets. And other talks, you've mentioned how you're kind of updating your Genesis 1 uh... Gosh, I can't even think of the name right now. How did that happen? Um, yes, the Lost, Lost World, World of Genesis 1. Yeah. yeah. So uh, after I'm done writing Lost World of the Prophets, uh, my next writing project is a book that I'm calling Advances in the Lost World of Genesis, where I'll bring the whole conversation up to date, things that I've learned in the last 15 years since that was first published, and ways that I've learned to explain things better, illustrations that can help. And we might be talking about some of those things today. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's exciting. I, I cannot wait to uh, read that. Um, yeah, so can you give us a, a general view of your view of Genesis 1 as immaterial origins? Sure. Uh, when I first wrote about this approach, uh, I talked about the importance of function, uh, that the text was more interested in setting up functions than it was in the actual manufacturing of material. Uh, I haven't changed my view on that, but I found that the word function was problematic for people. They didn't understand what I was talking about. Uh, so more recently, I tend to use the word order, which I think really hits at it much, much better. Uh, the fact is that in the ancient world, they were very interested in the way that God or the gods ordered the cosmos. And of course, that ties into it's ordered in order to function. So function still comes into it. But order also, also includes the idea of purpose and the role that everything has in the ordered system. So I feel like order is something that communicates better to people. Um, and 
uh, order is is arguably the highest value in the ancient world. So it's no surprise that people should, in the ancient world, writing ancient documents should be interested in God establishing order. So that's the first element that Genesis 1 focuses more on God ordering the world than on God manufacturing the material. Uh, he does that with a purpose, and that's the second major part of my view, uh, that the purpose is that he's ordering it not only to work for people, but he's ordering it to be a place where he will come and dwell among his people in relationship with them. So that very important theology of relationship and presence uh, is where the creation accounts going. Uh, so those are the two key elements, order and presence. Uh, I think that what drives the position that I'm developing is the basic question, what sort of creation account is this? It's not a question about what God created or didn't create it. God created everything in every way. But you still have to ask the literary question, what kind of creation account is it? And it's really asking that question that led me on this whole path 20 some years ago now. Uh, a good illustration would be to think about if you're going to a play and you get all tied up in traffic and parking's a problem and the weather's horrible and whatever and you end up walking in and finding your seat and then the lights come up for intermission and so you turn to the people around you and you say how did the play begin and one person says oh the play began when they uh, when the script was written in the 1930s and you say well script's important but that's not what i'm interested in and somebody else says, well, the play began with the building of the set. And so the set was constructed. You say, well, that's not what I'm interested in. Other people say, well, the play began when they chose the cast, because the cast is really, you say that, I, I know that, but that's not what I'm interested in. Please tell me what's happened since the curtain opened. But what I like about that illustration is that all of those answers are correct. All of those answers do address the question, how did the play begin? but they address it from different perspectives. Certainly the core question that you would have, what happened since the curtains open, doesn't deny that there's a set or a cast or a script. Of course, they're all there. They're acknowledged, they're involved, they're mentioned, but that, that's, that's not the question you're asking. And that's really what I'm getting at when I'm talking about Genesis 1. How did the world begin is the question. And you could address it in various different ways, and they would all be appropriate. It just depends what you want. And my view is that the narrator in Genesis uh, wants to talk about how the world began in terms of it being ordered, not in terms of the material being manufactured. You know, you've been teaching on your view for a while. Um, <clears throat> off the cuff question. When did you formulate the view and how has that been responded to in the scholarly community? Well, certainly any new view is going to be controversial. And um, I formulated it in the late 90s. Actually, I'd been doing a lot of work in Genesis ever since my grad school days. And so I'd done a lot of work thinking about Genesis, thinking about the ancient world, thinking about the literary form of Genesis and those kinds of ideas, the Hebrew text. So I'd been doing a lot of that work, but it didn't all come together with this view until the late 90s. It was actually in the middle of teaching a class 
that I was talking about Genesis 1 and actually framed the question, what sort of creation account is this? That led me to just blurt it all out right there. It all just fell into place. So that was the late 90s. the, but again, any time that you introduce new ideas that are going to be controversial, um, it's very difficult to address the question of, you know, how is it being received? Because I only hear little blips of it. Um, I get a lot of affirmation and encouragement. I get a lot of invitations to talk about it, which suggests to me that people are interested in it, um, especially in scholars younger than myself. I find a wide acceptance of it, um, but certainly there, there are those who disagree, um, and there have been academic reviews that take exception, and that's fine. I mean, that's really, I'm just trying to put information on the table to help us continue to think through the issues. So it doesn't bother me if people disagree. It bothers me sometimes if people don't represent my view correctly, and then they critique what they're view was that really wasn't what my view was. Um, But even among those who disagree, some might agree that the focus is on order and function, but they might disagree with the the temple focus that I use. Uh, Others might agree with the temple focus and disagree with the order and function. And so it really, it really varies. So it's, it's, there's no way to do a poll to know exactly how, how much this is accepted. But again, I get invited lots of places to talk about it. I get invited to write about it. Um, and I get a lot of very encouraging and affirming emails uh, from people who fa- find it helpful. And that's fine by me. If people don't find it helpful, fine. Do think about whatever you want to think about. Uh, but if this can help some people who are trying to work through it, I'm really happy to be able to play a part in that. Awesome. So, I mean, I've been interviewing a few people for the channel, you know, PhDs and all that. And uh, it's always interesting to see, like, the actual topic of the conversation won't be it. But then every once in a while, your view will come up and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, so he takes strong ones to you. Interesting. That kind of gets into, like, what our goal is for today. Um, can you talk about uh, what our goal is for topic? For this topic is obviously you know it's a controversial subject um like what what is the goal here sure obviously i i like it when people feel that my position makes sense but i'm really not driven to try to change the world and persuade people um, to convince them that they should think the way i do um i That's up to them to try to sort through the evidence. My job is to put evidence on the table, to bring information that people wouldn't naturally know themselves, but that I have access to because of my research, uh, and give them something to think about. Um, If they change their mind, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine. Um, But I think it's important that we continue to work the problem. information that I bring from the Hebrew text, I think is significant. The information from the ancient Near Eastern world is largely untapped uh, in the church, Uh, but also it involves how do you work through all of these things in the context of biblical authority, which is very important to me. And so I'm always uh, eager to explain how you can take this ancient Near Eastern material uh, and use it fruitfully 
within the context of biblical authority. Awesome. Yeah. So on the topic, well, so I would categorize your, just the way I see it, I would categorize your view of Genesis 1 in two ways. So you make an argument for just the context of before we even read the text, like this is how this probably would have been read. And then on the other hand, you have, okay, so we're actually reading the text, rereading the Bible, and it, and then this is how we're reading it. And, you know, even I would say that even if your original view of like how the context, how it would have been read, that like even if that doesn't work out, the, the other one still can, you know, go through. It's, it could still be a good argument. So um, so let's first get talked about that and then we'll talk about the other one. So uh, so can you just go through individually like, um, you know, you have day one, two, three, four, obviously you have Genesis one. Um, can you talk about like, you know, if it's, I guess, creation out of, or a creation out of nothing, like how you read that, uh, material, immaterial, what's going on on all these verses here? As you say, we have to start with a close reading of the biblical text um, and to see how we ought to read it. And I'm asking questions of the biblical text that people have not usually asked. Um, because many people just assume that, of course, if it's talking about creation, it's about material origins. And especially in our scientifically focused world, that's the way they read it. I'm certainly not willing to start with that assumption. If the text leads us there, that's fine. But we have to look at what the text actually does. One of the things that first drew my attention to all of this is that particularly in the first three days, God doesn't make any objects. So the first day, he creates day and night. That, that's order, the ordering of our world. He does it by saying, let there be light. Light is not material. Light is not an object. Uh, and But yet, it's not light so much that is the focus of the creation. It's day and night. He called them day and night. That's how the day one ends. So this is dealing with time as an organizing feature, giving order to our world, nothing material. Day two, it says that he made the rakia, and there's been a lot of discussion about what rakia means. In some of my earlier writings, I said that I thought it referred to the solid sky, but of course we don't believe there is a solid sky, so that opens up questions of its own. Uh, I have since then, um, moved to consider that the rakia is the open space uh, between the solid sky and the earth. And so it's between the waters and the waters, and the solid sky uh, is, is part of the picture, but that the rakia actually is the open space. Um, so if that's true, then again, this is space. It's, it's not something material. The third day, it's let the dry ground emerge. It doesn't say God made the dry land. Uh, it's let the plants grow. So again, there's nothing that he brings into material existence. It's dealing with materials, of course. Dry land is material. Water is material. Plants are material. But it doesn't focus on God making them, manufacturing them. It's rather organizing them. And so, again, we're trying to pay attention to what the text is doing with these things that it mentions. 
So right off the bat, the first three days, nothing is manufactured. Now, people think that that changes in day four because we have God making the lights. But you have to notice that it does say lights. In the ancient world, they did not know that the sun, moon, and stars were material objects. They had no clue. They certainly didn't know that the sun was a burning ball of gas or that the moon was a rock in orbit reflecting the light of the sun. In the rest of the ancient world, they considered them gods. But of course, Israel doesn't share that view. But Israel viewed them as lights, exactly what they call them. So God made the lights. It doesn't say God made the sun, moon, and stars. Okay, he, I should correct that. It does name the stars, and of course, he calls them the greater light and the lesser light. But he makes the lights. The verb make in Hebrew indicates agency. And that can be agency for material manufacturing, or it can be agency for ordering or providing or preparing, all sorts of things that that verb is translated. So in day four, we may think that the material objects are being created, but Israelites are not thinking of the account in that way because they don't know that they are material objects. So they don't think that this is the account of material objects. Day five, it's let fish swarm, let birds teem. He's bringing populations into place in their ordered place. They're the wallpaper, they're the furniture, they're the, the ways that our world is populated. And even when we get to day six, um, he's the focus is on the image of God. People are image bearers. They are order bringers. He's assigning functions to them. So in this sense, we go through all six days and we find that the text says nothing almost. I mean, certainly when he makes people in day six, you could say, well, that's material. But again, it immediately talks about them and their role as order bringers and within the order of the cosmos. So, and even there in, in Genesis 1, human beings is a population. Adam and Eve are not in Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 does not suggest he just made two. It's the population. And then, of course, day seven has nothing whatever to do with material things. And that leaves lots of people to leave it out and say, oh, day seven, well, that's just some Jewish Sabbath practice or something. Uh, no, day seven is the most important day. Day seven is when God sits on his throne. In the ancient world, you don't, the gods in temples don't rest on a bed or in a futon or a hammock. They rest on their throne. And so the idea that God has ordered the cosmos over which he is going to rule and in which he is going to be present. That's the major theology of the chapter. And we miss it when we just want to make it scientific material stuff. Um, we miss it when we don't recognize the ordering aspect to what the text is doing. So somebody might say, well, it's maybe it's both material and function. And my challenge is, show me the material. Not just that they mention it, show me that they 
actually are focused on manufacturing of material. If you go day after day after day after day and it doesn't mention anything about manufacturing material, that's a hard case to make. So that's how I would work through day by day uh, through what we have in the text. So you mentioned all the days, but um, then of course someone could say, okay, well, you know, the days aren't actually, you know, creation out of nothing anyways. It's, it's really Genesis 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was the initial God created everything. And then everything else is just, you know, something God moving stuff around. So do, do you think Genesis 1, 1 is creation out of nothing? Or how would you uh, interpret that verse there? Uh, in my view, and many people share this view, Genesis 1 is a literary introduction to the chapter. Nothing happens in verse 1. Genesis 1, 1 is a literary introduction. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. And then let me tell you how he did it. So verse 2 begins the story. And you get to the end in day 7 where it reflects back and he says, so in these seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. It's in the seven days. It's not before them. So you really can't, can't do that. Um, Genesis 1.1 is an introduction, follows in the line of what the what Genesis does all the way through the book. We have those 11, these are the generations of, these are the generations of. The first one is in chapter 2, verse 4. And there, the author continually uses literary introductions to tell you what he's going to talk about. And that's what I believe Genesis 1.1 is. And again, you can't really pull it out and say all the material stuff took place before the seven days because by the end of the chapter it says creation took place in the seven days so i i don't think that stands up um, what we have of god's creative work presented in this account this literary account is in the seven days so a little bit off the cuff here so i'm sure you've heard that you know there's a somewhat kind of uh amount of scholars that are uh think that Genesis 1-1 should be interpreted as when God began to create the heavens and the earth. Would you say that messes with your view there? Or would you say that's compatible? If that's the way that it should be translated, that leads even more to the to support the view that I take. It doesn't have to be translated that way to support the view that I take. But if, if it is translated that way, fine. Uh, that That makes my position even more firm. Okay. All right. So um, something that's been almost confusing to a lot of people, but also to me um, sometimes is that, so you say, you know, Genesis 1 is about <clears throat> immaterial origins, you know, from uh, non-order to order, um, not about creation ex nihilo out of nothing. Um, but then, you know, and, and you've actually even in the past, you've said that, like, if we could go back in time right before the creation event and that we wouldn't we wouldn't actually see anything different, um, it, di significant one. We wouldn't see like the world moving around and stuff like that. You know, when we get to something like uh, day three, where it talks about uh, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. But that sounds like some like huge, significant moving of land mass and water and all this other stuff like is you wouldn't say that's what that's what's going on in the text would you no i don't think that we can build a scientific view of origins from the text because the text isn't doing that and they wouldn't have thought in their terms for instance i 
I might be wrong, but I don't know of anybody that scientifically says the earth was once fully covered with water at the beginning before the land masses appeared. Uh, maybe there are people who say that. I just haven't run into them. Um, so that idea that somewhere in the geologically in the past history of the earth that at some point it was totally covered with water. I just don't know anybody that says that. Um, so we don't look to the Bible to give us scientific descriptions. Water represents non-order in the ancient world. And what the author is conveying is that it starts out non-order, water and darkness. And that's what those things convey. So they're not trying to convey scientific factoids. They're conveying something that made sense in the ancient Near East. So you mentioned how, like, the days of Genesis, you don't think they are, you know, creation out of nothing. Um, but at the same time, you, um, you I mean, obviously there's the, the parts where it says, let there be, um, you know, all throughout the passage, uh, you know, when it, when it says, let there be lights or let there be a vault, um, where we see a, it seems like it's not existing. And then all of a sudden, it's it's there, like you don't. Mention, there's no other mention previously. Then all of a sudden, it's there. Uh, some people would say that that's creation out of nothing. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, remember, lots of the things that he says, "Let there be," are functions, uh, aspects of order. Um, secondly, in the ancient world, the idea that things come into existence by the decree of God is pretty common. The gods make decrees and everything that happens, history, nature, whatever, is the decree of the gods. And Israel reflects the same thing. This is the decree of Yahweh. Furthermore, of course, it, um, it asks us to address the question of what does it mean to exist? And we get into that as well. We tend to think of existence in material terms. They didn't. Um, and that's the functional ontology that I talked about, that things exist when they have a role and a purpose in an ordered system. That's just the way they thought in the ancient world. And so for God to call something into existence in their way of thinking is not a material act. That's our way of thinking. That's that's pretty fascinating. Um, it's pretty tough to wrap your brain yeah. around too. Yeah. So you know we're talking about the how how the ancient reader would have read Genesis one. Um, of course, the question is, all right, well, how do we figure that out? Well, obviously, you read the Bible, but if we want to get in the eyes, the mind of the ancient reader, um, you know, we we've also found other texts. Um, from outside the Bible, a lot of those texts uh, are are heavily, you know, pagan influenced. You know, there's stories about creating gods and all that. Do you not have some type of fear of, um, you know, that God wouldn't want us to read pagan literature and um, get into those types of things? For me, the issue is not really whether the literature is pagan or not. Of, of course, it's literature that promotes other gods that reflects the worship of other gods and the belief in other gods, but that's not what I'm using it for. I'm not trying to derive correct theology from the ancient Near East. 
And I'm certainly not suggesting that the Bible is a literary derivative that's only reworking those and changing around the names of the gods. I'm trying to recover the ways that people thought in the ancient world. And all of their literature gives us a window to that, whether it's mythology or their hymns and prayers or their wisdom literature or their legal documents or their treaties or whatever it might be. Every bit of literature contributes to our understanding of the way they thought in the ancient world. That's what I want to recover. It's not like I'm trying to recover some pieces of literature that the Bible borrowed from. I don't see the Bible as indebted to certain pieces of literature. I see it as embedded in the culture of the ancient world. And if that's true, and I don't know how you could argue that it's not, they're an ancient people. And if that's true, then if we can understand how ancient people thought, and that it's different from how we think, we're going to gain information for interpreting the Bible better. Israelites would have thought about the world. I'm not talking about thinking about God. They would have thought about the world more like Babylonians or Egyptians thought than how we think. Right? They, they have no idea of all the ways we think about the world. But there's an, a lot of overlap between how they thought about the world around them and how Assyrians or Canaanites or anybody else thought. And so if that's true, then we ask the question, how did Babylonians or Egyptians think? In what ways is that different from how we would think? In some of my writings more recently, I refer to that as the cultural river, that we need to try to understand the cultural river. Our own cultural river has things like capitalism and democracy and freedom and rights and big bang cosmology and all of these aspects that define who we are. Social media, consumerism, all of these things are part of our cultural river. And we understand them. We might not like them. We might try to resist them, but we understand them. And conversations take place in this cultural river. The point I make is that the Israelites have no understanding of our cultural river. Most of those terms would mean nothing to them. And they certainly wouldn't understand why they represented values. Uh, they do not anticipate our cultural river. Just because God inspired the Bible and God knows everything doesn't mean that God built our cultural river into their texts. He communicated to them in their cultural river. And as a result, uh, I dare not read the Bible. Uh, as somehow reflecting my cultural river and impose my cultural river on it. Instead, I have to try to drop that to the side, as hard as that is to do, and try to immerse myself in the Israelite cultural river, which I do by learning about the broader literature from the ancient world, because that's the cultural river that Israel is in. So I want to understand that cultural river. That means I have to understand what they would mean by kingship, not what I would mean by kingship. What they would think about genders and marriage, not what I would think about genders and marriage. What they would think about creation instead of what I would think about creation. Uh, the, the whole process of trying to push aside our own cultural river 
and then delve into the literature of the ancient world to understand their cultural river is an important part of interpretation. And that's really what I'm trying to do. So it has nothing to do with whether that literature is pagan or not. Um, it, it just doesn't make a difference. It defines how we think and how they thought in their world. And again, we're not making any suggestion that the Israelites were influenced in writing the Bible by those literatures. They are rather embedded in the culture. So, for instance, when they think about law, do they think about law the same way we do? That's not a matter of biblical revelation. It's a matter of culture. One of the points I make in the, the book I did on Lost World of the Torah is that there is no such thing as statutory legislation in the ancient world, not anywhere. But we always think of law in terms of statutory legislation. Well, if we bring our idea and read the Bible through that, we're, we're going to mess things up. We have to think about law the way they did. We have to think about history the way they did. But think about history the way we think about empiricism and eyewitnesses and all of those things. That frames how we think about history. We have a different idea of how we use the past, how we write about the past. These are not things that have to do with deep theology of, of the nature of God. It's just how people think in the ancient world. All literature is, is pregnant with cultural ideas. I was reading a book lately, and it talked about people that were looking forward to a more normal life. And one says to the other, I just want a nine to five, a white picket fence, a black lab, and 2.5 kids. Think about all the culture that's embedded in those four statements. A nine to five what? We know what he's talking about, but somebody from another culture, another time wouldn't. A white picket fence, really? What's that got to do with? A black lab. What, are you talking about a meth lab with blacked out windows? Probably not. It's a dog. 2.5 kids. How can you have 0.5 kids? Just a basic, simple statement like that is filled with cultural baggage that you have to decipher before you can understand what's going on. Any literature is like that. And the Bible is no exception. I totally agree. Um, so before we get into the text of, you know, looking at other cultures, uh, I wanted to ask you, would you say that the, the culture, the, the nations surrounding Israel, that none of them saw existence as material? Or was it just some of them, some of them and therefore the Israelites probably didn't? Like, is that how you would see it? When I see things in the ancient Near East, methodology first here. When I see things in the ancient Near East, that doesn't mean I automatically say that Israel thought the same way. I want to see Israel thinking a certain way and then say, is that match up with the ancient Near East or is it different? Um, if I see something in the ancient Near East, I might ask, gee, I wonder if there's any chance that Israel thought that way too. Let me go back and look at the texts. And so just from a methodological standpoint, I don't impose the ancient Near East on the text just because it's in the ancient Near East, it must be in Israel. Uh, it rather prompts me to ask questions that I might not have otherwise asked. I find the ancient Near Eastern creation texts consistent across time and across culture in prioritizing their interest and focus on order rather than material. 
certainly some of the texts refer to material objects, and we'll probably get to that in our, as our discussion goes on here. Well, certainly they do, but that doesn't mean that their focus and interest is on material. You have to ask the bigger question, how does, when they mention anything material, and of course, lots of times they don't, but when they do, how is that fitting into what they're saying? The example I've been using more recently um, is the difference between creating a house and creating a home. When you create a house, we're talking about the material structure, foundation, the roof, the, the plumbing, the electricity, uh, all of those things are part of creating a house, building a house, a material process. And that's an important origins kind of story for the place where you live. But you can also talk about creating a home. Homemaking is a different sort of activity. Arguably, it's just as important. You can live in a house, but how do you make it your home? And making it your home has to do with things like how you arrange the furniture. What room is serving what purpose? Is that going to be a den or is it going to be a dining room? Or is it going to be a computer room or a game room? Uh, which room are going to be bedrooms? Which rooms are going to be TV rooms? Uh, that's, that's making a home. That's organizing and ordering so that it functions for the purposes that you have when you live there. Now, both the house story and the home story are origins stories, but they're different origins story. Certainly when you're making a home, you're working in the material environment. You're moving furniture around. That doesn't mean you built the furniture. Maybe you did, but that's not the point. So it involves material objects, but it's really not talking about how those material objects came into being. Uh, that's not the home story. I contend that when we think about origins, we always want to think about a house story because we think materially. And I suggest that both Israel and everyone in the ancient Near East thought in terms of a home story. Uh, that is, they're interested in the order, ordering of that world rather than the material makeup. So I don't find anything in the ancient Near East that is a strictly material focus. They're always interested in order. Hmm, fascinating. Would you also say that, well, I guess, I guess you'd say that necessarily there are no texts around that time period in that place that would have described creation out of nothing? Is that what you're saying? That question is worded prejudiciously. Um, creation out of nothing. Are you talking about material creation? Okay. <laughs> or creation the way they think about it as order. Order is created out of non-order. Non-order is nothing. So in that sense, they are talking about creation out of nothing when they're talking about ordering a non-ordered world. If you're talking at the material level, Okay, of course, that would only be a sensible question if they thought in material terms and if they focused on a material perspective. Certainly in some texts, they begin with nothing being in existence. But that doesn't mean that they are then going to focus on the manufacture of material. We still have the question of what it means to exist and whether materials are only discussed in terms of order bringing, as, as I suggest that they are. So... It's just a question, yes, 
Sometimes a, a text starts and there's just nothing but the God. Okay, but then what's going to happen from there? He's going to order the world. And so that ordering takes place, of course, with material things, but does it does it care about the material aspect? One illustration I use of this is if you talk to somebody about their electronic devices, their iPad or their phone or things like that, and you just ask them, you know, tell me about your, your iPad. They'll talk to you about the apps and the operating systems and you know the, the company that, that made it and uh, how they use it. They will not talk to you about the chemical polymers in the screen or the case. They know that those things are there, but they don't care. Unless you're a chemist, then you might care. But that's that's just not the question that they would even think that you could possibly be asking. When you ask me about my computer, you're not asking about the polymers in the screen. And so that would be of little interest to them, and they wouldn't talk about it. So again, this is the question of focus. So no, I don't, I don't see anything in the ancient Near East that's interested in material ex nihilo. <clears throat> order ex nihilo, yes, of course. There was no order, now there is. So then now that we kind of talked about like a general overview of like how, how they would have seen the text, um, let's, let's really dive in, dive in here and uh, see if, look at actually specific texts to give you examples of, of how they actually thought. Um, how they described what they were thinking. Um, so this text right here is called uh, Egyptian Papyrus Insinger. John, could you tell us a little bit about it? Um, background of like, and I guess how you would say that it should influence our reading of Genesis 1 here. Sure. So this is a creation text. It's Ptolemaic. So it comes at the end of the Old Testament period. Uh, so it's it's indicating kind of how people continue to think, even in the Hellenistic period. Uh, it includes occasional references to material. So it makes a reference, for instance, to the sweet water. Okay, but that's that's really exceptional. Um, if you're, it's basically line after line after line that says he created, and then it has different things. So it is a creation text. It uses that terminology. But when you look down through the whatever it is, 50 lines uh, that each talk about something, they're almost entirely having to do with order and function. So light and darkness, day, month and year, summer and winter, constellations. That's not the stars. That's the arrangement of the stars, constellations, breath in the egg, birth in the womb, sinews and bones coming out of the same semen, by the way. Uh, they created sleep, created remedies, created dreams, created wealth, created work. Uh, all of these things indicate that it's very much the order in the world that they're interested in. And that discussion of ordering is a creation discussion. Uh, so it's a great example of how that how that happens in the ancient world yeah so it sounds like you're saying that basically what we see is okay so even though there is some material physical aspects here um i guess that's almost if they're if they're attempting to describe the function that they almost have to mention those and um 
And what we're doing is we're looking at the entire text and we're seeing, okay, like of all the creations, there's like, say 15, I haven't actually counted it, but say there's 15 and maybe two of those mention something material, but the rest of it isn't material at all. And therefore it most likely that the other two are not concerned with material. Is that, is that a good way to put it? Right. So the, uh, so for instance, the mention of sinews and bones those are material but in that very same line the point is that they're out of the same semen how do you get from semen to sinews and bones that fascinated them but that's something involved in the ordering he mentioned sweet water but he created sweet water in it which all the lands desire again the use of water the need for water but if this were going to be a material account you would expect a whole list of material objects being manufactured. And we can see that that's clearly not their interest. Most of the lines don't mention anything material. He created work for the stupid man, food for the common man. This has nothing to do with material. So the question is not whether material objects were created by the gods. The question is, what sort of creation account is it? Of course, everybody in the ancient world, Israelites and others included, believed that the gods made the material stuff. But they weren't interested in talking about it, just like we're not interested in talking about the chemical polymers in our computer screens. It's a matter of interest. Uh, it goes back to house and home. Yes, if you move furniture, it means there's furniture. That doesn't mean you're talking about who made the furniture, you or anybody else. So just the fact that it includes reference to material objects doesn't mean that's the focus of the literature. And that's the distinction that's important to make. What kind of creation account is it? Uh, think about even, we say, okay, lots of problems that you experience on a computer can be fixed by rebooting. <laughs> Reboot. Okay, and we've kind of gotten used to that, although sometimes we forget it. Um, when you reboot, you're not punishing your computer by wiping something out. Think about the flood. The flood is not presented as punishment. It's presented as rebooting, rebooting order in the cosmos. There's, a, there's violence, there's disorder, there's non-order, and God reboots. And that's why you have all the parallel repetitions between Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis 6 through 8, because it's saying God's rebooting the system. So to keep going, uh, another text we could talk about is called Marduk, the creator of the world. And um, so in lines 1 to 10, it talks about how there's no material objects. And then in line 20 onward, it starts talking about all that. Um, so what do you think the emphasis of this text is and how how could we how do you think that it should impact our view of Genesis 1? Yeah, this is a work that uh, Lambert calls the founding of Eridu. Uh, Lambert is, uh, let me get this in the camera there, okay. Lambert's the guy who has done the definitive critical edition of Babylonian creation myths. So that's where you'd get up-to-date, detailed information, although most people wouldn't have the tolerance to work through it. Um, so he calls this the founding of Eridu. 
Uh, and it's all about the founding of the first city and its temple. Uh, he's talking about creation with the function of city and temple building, just like I would say Genesis 1 gets to the idea of kind of the, the cosmos as sacred space where God's going to dwell. All the material objects mentioned are for the construction of the temple. And so even though it says things like he created humankind, okay, is that a material statement or an order statement that mankind is created so that they can build temples? And it goes on to talk about some of the things created wild animals, the living creatures of the open country, created and put in place the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. He pronounced their names. And then he created all of these things that are used uh, for the temples and for the buildings of the temples. So no one could possibly read that account without recognizing that it's about providing all the materials for the temple building. And the temple is the center of order in the cosmos. The most famous Babylonian creation text, uh, Enuma Elish, uh, again, begins with no order. Uh, nothing had a name, and the, the gods were not yet there. Um, names had not been called, it says. And interesting that Lambert translates that as they did not exist. Because if their name had not been called, they didn't have a place in the ordered system. It addresses in terms of birth and destinies. So again, we can see that even though this is the premier creation account, and certainly material objects are mentioned, the focus of all of it is for the ordering of the cosmos. So just to be completely clear, so if you're an ancient reader and you're reading this and you you read, okay, or, or even the writer, and it says, no holy house, no house for the gods, no, no nothing's been created, nothing, essentially nothing exists, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have all this stuff being created, all this ma material things being created. Um, you, th this isn't out of nothing. This is like, would the ancient reader just be like, okay, this is purely the function. They wouldn't see like, you know, a bunch of materials being put together or anything like that. It's out of nothing in terms of order. Those first 20 lines describe non-order. There was, there was no temple. That's the center of order. There was no house for the gods. And all of the things that were necessary, likewise, were not in place. In that sense, those first 20 lines are very much like Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void, darkness on the surface of the deep. There was non-order. And then it's going to talk about how order was established. Certainly order is established among material things. But again, just because you're arranging the furniture doesn't mean that you're building the furniture. Yes, they would have thought that the gods created the material stuff, of course. But the material existence is not the end in itself. It's not what they're shooting for. And therefore, it really doesn't give an assessment of material origins. Hmm. That's how I would view it. Obviously, people differ. And uh, a bit off the cuff here, too. If you're an ancient reader, 
these are all past events, right? Um, but but at some point they had to be written, and I guess this goes into like how these texts were created, how they were thought of. Like, it had to start somewhere, and at some point, at they had to say, okay, like I mean, if 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 I just randomly wrote this, like I in my twenty first century idea. I already know all of this exists, so it would be super weird for me to say, like, nothing existed. Does that make any sense? I'm, I might be rambling. I'm not quite sure what you're getting at. I mean, <laughs> obviously, they're trying to write. When people write about the past, they're writing to try to help them understand the present. That's true of events, and it's true of things like this, cosmology. They want to understand the present, why things are the way they are, how they work, how we got here, what do we do? Um, and that's why people are interested in the past. So uh, they believe that the gods established order, but they also believe that the gods are maintaining order day by day, uh, moment by moment. In Egypt, it's more explicit. Uh, they have the more unusual view that the world was created anew every morning when the sun rose. And so creation was a day-by-day -day experience. And that shows you that the simple inauguration at some point in the primordial past isn't really that much differentiated from what the gods continue to do. Um, we make that distinction between past and present. We would say creation and sustaining of the world. And, um, but again, those blended together more in their minds uh, because creation was ongoing. Uh, one of the early writers uh, in, the, in the 20th century about the Bible and science debate, Richard Bube, Stanford professor, uh, talked about the idea of um, what would happen if God unplugged himself from the cosmos? Would ethics kind of deteriorate? Would people find it hard to love? Would what? And his conclusion was it would be just like if you're watching a TV show and you unplug the TV. It's not like the actors would start forgetting their lines or that the plot would deteriorate. It would just be nothing. And if God unplugged himself from the cosmos, it would be as if nothing existed and nothing ever had existed. And I think that conveys well the idea of how invested, ingrained, engaged God is in the existence of the cosmos. And I think that we reduce that and lose it if we only think in material terms. Um, the cosmos has been created by God for us, for ordering our world and for him to dwell with us. And we can't lose sight of those important theological issues. Yeah, totally. Um, so we talked about how, you know, they would have seen these texts uh, as 
you know, immaterial origins, uh, not ordered to order, uh, not about the material. Of course, you can ask, okay, well, why isn't it material and immaterial? And, um, and I guess my question for you is, if that's um, the claim, like if, the, if, if there's a claim that it is about material and you say it's not, then what would we expect it to look like? What text would you have to see in the ancient Near East to then conclude, hey, that specific one is about the material? That's a great question, Zach. In fact, it's one that people haven't asked me before. So I was really, uh, I'm excited to think about it. If we were to see a material account of creation, let's start with just in the Bible. What would a material account look like? And how would that be different from Genesis 1? And as I think about it, I think that's, that's really not difficult to answer because there are numerous places throughout the Old Testament that actually do make material comments. So, uh, Jonah tells the sailors, I worship Yahweh who made the sea and the dry land. There you have it. That's a material statement. Okay. In Genesis 1, those were already present. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. They're already there. It doesn't say God made them. But Jonah makes that statement. The Israelites believed that statement. That's a material statement. Uh, you take places like Psalm 104, uh, Job 38, where God laid the foundations of the earth. That's a material statement. Just right there. Doesn't say anything more about it. God laid the foundations along with its dimensions and its footings in Job 38. Psalm 104, God stretches out the heavens. Material statement. Uh, Amos 4.13. God forms the mountains. Did you notice that in Genesis 1, there's no mention of mountains or lakes or rivers? None of the terraform stuff is there. That's what I would expect in a material account. So a statement like Amos, God forms the mountains. That's a material statement. We know that the Israelites could think that way. And we know that they could express that. But none of those statements are in creation accounts. When they want to tell a creation account, they want to tell a home story. They don't want to tell a house story. Psalm 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm woven together. I'm fearfully made. My frame. Okay, those are material statements. And notice that, that that's the creation of each person. So it's something that's not kind of unique to Adam and Eve. These talk about what God has done, but they're not creation accounts. They're passing statements about what God has done. And even many of those pay more attention to order or function. I'm not trying to build a theology of creation. You can do that, but that's not what I'm trying to do for either them or for us. I'm trying to understand this piece of literature, Genesis 1. Theology of creation has to build in all of those other things. All the statements in Amos or Job or Psalm 104, fine. Okay, but if you're trying to understand Genesis 1, you have to focus on what it's, what it's doing. And that's important for us because Genesis 1, of course, becomes the, 
focus of all kinds of controversy about things like the age of the earth, about science and the Bible. And there, Genesis 1 is the issue. So we have to understand what the text is doing. So at any rate, that's I think that's a really important question. And uh, thanks for helping me kind of flesh that out a bit. So I want to talk about this one. And this is a this is a fascinating one. Um, because there isn't a lot of commentary that I've noticed on this one. Um, it's called When Anu Had Created the Heavens. And um, yeah, could you talk about that? Like what its purpose is, uh, what's going on here? Um, I mean, obviously it's about a temple. So that's, that's different. No surprise, their creation accounts end up talking about temple. Genesis 1, creation account ends up talking about not temple per se, but sacred space, which of course temples represent. So uh, again, that the title that you gave when Anu had created the heavens, that's the title that it was given back in the 50s when Alexander Heidel first, first wrote on it. Uh, Lambert calls this the first brick. And when you read through the account, you can see why, why that's the case. Uh, the first brick, first of all, you have to understand, this is kind of like white picket fence that I mentioned before. Um, we know what white picket fence refers to, although maybe younger people don't. Uh, that's a nice little house in the suburbs. But at any rate, um, first brick is important because um, in our culture, we do ribbon cutting ceremonies, or we have kind of the people putting the shovel in the ground, you know, and that's a ceremony to mark the beginning of a big project. When they were building a temple in the ancient world, which was the most important building project any king could do, they brag about doing it all the time. So we know this over thousands of years. They're very interested in temple building. They had a first brick ceremony. Uh, the God had to tell them where to build the temple. The God had to tell them how to orient it. And the first step, the king would ceremonially, ceremonially come out with a special basket on his head. And we can see these in reliefs from 2500 BC all the way down to the Assyrians in 600, 700 BC. A basket on their heads where they carried the first brick. And they carried out and they laid in exactly the right place. And then that will become what gives orientation to the entire temple. So this creation piece is connected to the first brick. And again, Lambert titles it that way. So it talks about all the materials that went into making a brick. Of course, a brick is a man-made object, not a God-created object. But it talks about how this brick is made up from all of these different things uh, that the text mentions. The, the focus is that its role in temple building and the rituals gave that first brick significance and power. And that's what the text is getting at. The focus of that text is not material. The focus is ritual and the ritual significance of the first brick. So again, we have to read the literature as a piece of literature rather than cherry picking out, oh, this line looks material. That's, that's not getting at it. Okay, so it'd be back to your computer example. If someone was talking about all the things in a computer and they mentioned the screen, you say, ah, they're talking about the screen. This is chemical polymers. <laughs> no, they just mentioned the screen. It's 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 about something else. Yeah, uh, you know, it mentions the gods. Uh, so it literally says, 
well, depending on the translation, it says he created Kula for the restoration of the temples. He created Nildu, Nintsimug, Erazu. And um, I think this is Heidel. Heidel says at the bottom, he's like, okay, everything that's created here, even the name, each god, each god is specifically the god of the carpenters or the smiths, the goldsmiths. Um, what do you think, I guess, the the focus here is that it's creating a god, but it's not just creating the god, it's it's creating the god, I guess, for that, essentially. Right. The gods are set up with certain jurisdictions, and they give skills to the craftsmen. Um, in the Bible, it does something like that when it talks about uh, the craftsmen for the tabernacle, and that the spirit of the Lord empowered him to do that work. Uh, there, they don't have different gods with different jurisdictions. But of course, in Babylon, they do. So here he's talking about all the different gods that were involved as they empowered the different craftsmen. So again, very much toward uh, making the brick, which then leads to the making of the temple. So in a lot of your texts you or videos and stuff like that, you mentioned how the Egyptians would specifically say that the like existence, uh, like existence wasn't it was not that it wasn't material you, you know what i'm trying to say yeah um, um let me so in egyptian texts uh they talk about things like the desert and the sea as non-existent that's one of the evidences that i present that they didn't think about existence in the same way that we do we think about existence as material we would say of course the desert exists i can see it i can touch it i can walk in it you know, of course it exists but they call it the non-existent because it's part of the non-ordered world. If it's not built into the order for the functioning of humanity, uh, then they consider it non-existent. And so it, that's one of the evidences that helps us understand that they're thinking differently than we do. And how many texts of those would you say are out there that describe this? A uh, handful. Any, uh, any of them come to mind? Well, the main, the main person who writes on this um, is uh, James Allen, and he's got a book called Egyptian Creation Text, and he presents them all. They're also published in this book. Here we go, get in front of my camera. Context of Scripture, this is volume one, but this has the creation text in it. It has the Sumerian and Akkadian and Egyptian and all of the texts in translation by scholars who work in this in this field um, so so yeah this goes through a number of them the egyptian text um, and in my books when i refer to that i give a footnote as well mostly to alan's work and alan did the translation in in this book as well so for lots of the texts mr walton i appreciate you coming on here i'm sure a lot of people got a lot out of this this is honestly a dream come true uh just to even be talking to you right now mm -hmm. uh Appreciate you coming on. Is there anything that you would like to um, not promote, but any way that we could check out more of your stuff? Uh, would you say that there is one specific book you think would be best to dive into this topic? Yeah, that's hard to say. In Lost World of Adam and Eve, I summarized for a couple chapters the main points of Lost World of Genesis 1. And so they can get that there and then also get um, how I moved that into Genesis 2. Um, so something like that could be a good place to start for people. Uh, if they want to know more about the ancient world per se and our methodologies for using it, I've got a book called Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament, 
which approaches it obviously a bit differently than that. Uh, and even, you know, if people want to get started uh, just to understand the cultural river of the ancient world, I've got this cultural background study Bible. The one I'm holding up is NRSV. It's also available in NIV. And all the study notes in this are study notes about backgrounds, information. So this doesn't do theology or application as important as those are, but it just does the, the background information and people can get a good start uh, by using a study Bible such as that. Yeah, I can attest to that. It's definitely my favorite. My parents actually had it on their shelf. They don't know anything about you, but <laughs> or Craig Keener, they had it on their shelf. And I was just looking on the shelf one time. I was like, what in the world is this? This is John Walton. Um, <laughs> um, all right. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Is there anything you'd like to say before we head off here? No, you know, I just, I want to encourage people to be willing to think in an ancient world kind of way. I know that's hard, um, but even if you don't have much access to the ancient world, to be able to recognize things from our cultural river that are influencing your reading and try to move those aside, to be willing to approach the text as an ancient text, inspired, yes, but ancient, and to try to take that into account. Uh, Again, I deal with lots of that in the book that's coming called Best Practices for Faithful Interpretation. And uh, that's, that's not going to be a very fat book, uh, introductory kind of primer to thinking about how to interpret scripture. And I hope people would find that helpful as well. Dr. Walton, um, I hope you have a great rest of your day and uh, uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for the conversation. <laughs>